just go ahead and get started. We're uh, we're gonna try to keep things a, a a little loose today, a little interactive. Great opportunity for raising questions, talking about challenges. Um, so glad that you're here. I do have slides for us, and I'll walk through the slides, uh, talk a little about a few topics. Some of them that you see here uh, mentioned on the slides. This is actually a very similar talk that I gave a couple of weeks ago to a smaller group from home. And uh, it felt like a, a great set of issues to bring to all of you and uh, also to plan a little more time for it. So we budgeted in today compared to the last time I presented these slides, budgeted in a little more time. So I'll have questions for you. We'll have a chance to talk. Um, we're not gonna use breakout rooms or anything formal like that, but you can use the chat or you can just jump in. What I'm gonna talk about today is a little bit of the evolution. This is an issue we've been talking about for a while on the home team, evolution of an understanding about the target population, meaning the clients that you serve on the home team, kind of where where is your focus in your work. Um, uh, relatedly, sort of thinking a little about the shift, transitioning from SB82 to the current home, shift in the, the aims of the team, uh, of the work of the team, and the kinds of interventions you use. I'll say a little at the end as well about the outpatient conservatorship pilot. And uh, of course, this is, as I said, always a setting where you can ask some questions, more things you want to know about any of these things. So we should just stop and field those questions immediately. Um, and I'm gonna start just by showing you a tweet from Dr. Sharon from just a couple of weeks ago. This is actually the day before I last gave this talk coincidentally. This was the tweet. For decades, we have allowed those needing mental health and addiction treatment to fall into our criminal justice system, also known as the closed asylum just as we have let them languish on our streets, also known as the open asylum, instead of facilitating their access to our care system. This is precisely the problem that home addresses. And I think of this as an inequity, a disparity. Um, uh, we could say those with severe mental illness, uh, one of the most underserved populations in our, uh, in our country, uh, in our state, for sure. And this is an, an inequity that home addresses. The unjust deterioration, incarceration, death of those with severe mental illness. This is suffering that is preventable. And uh, a lot of what you do is try to prevent this kind of suffering. Um, I'm going to talk very specifically about that issue. Who is a really critical choice? You want to invest your energy in those who most can benefit from it. Now, this description that I have here of the home target population, uh, this comes from a new iteration of the home uh, brochure. Uh, so you may or may not have seen this new brochure, but this is wording chosen very carefully to describe the nature of the population that home serves. 
home teams serve individuals who are 18 and over who are experiencing chronic homelessness and who have profound mental health needs and impairments. These vulnerable and disengaged individuals struggle with securing appropriate food, clothing, and shelter due to their mental illness. In addition, they may have critical deficits in hygiene and communication, and they may be highly avoidant of services. They are unable to live safely in the community and often need specialized mental health services in order to secure and sustain housing. I'm gonna go back through the wording here a second time. In another way, we'll look at it again in depth and, uh, and then take your questions, comments about this. So again, this is just the, the wording repeated from, uh, from that brochure. Uh, profound mental health needs and impairments. So needs and impairments that are as a result of their mental illness. Disengaged and highly avoidant of services. You all know this. These are folks who have had traumatic experiences, negative experiences, or simply indifferent experiences. They've gotten no help from traditional services, and they tend to not really be seeking them. Um, that is kind of the, the key, key uh, relationship they've had with services. And they may struggle due to their mental illness to secure food, clothing, and shelter. Um, and they may, in addition, you might notice they have challenges with hygiene and with communication. Hygiene, communication, those are just two things that sometimes with a severe mental illness uh, can be quite impaired. It's just one of the things that we tend to see frequently. And uh, unable to live safely in the community. So just ju some general sense, they really struggle to keep themselves safe in the community for a variety of reasons could be. And, and critically, and I think about this aspect a lot, to me, this seems really uh, useful. It's just, this is just a group for whom uh, housing, some stability in their housing situation is just not gonna be attainable without some access to mental health services, without some treatment, some specialized intervention. These are not really folks who are just gonna be able to take advantage of offerings of housing. They're gonna need some help uh, uh, moving in that direction. And that's who home serves. Um, any observations, uh, questions, um, anything that you notice about this definition? How does it sound to you? Does it seem right? Something missing? Okay, we'll keep going and uh, we're gonna circle around this a little bit, in fact. so. Uh, let me know your thoughts. We've tried, we, you all, um, all of us together have tried various strategies to operationalize the target population for home, meaning define it very concretely, sort of have a checklist for it. So it's quite clear who home should serve. Um, and unfortunately, this is a larger problem in mental health services. Um, we don't have good measures. We don't have really, really clear uh, descriptors, behavioral descriptors of, of very severe mental illness symptoms. Um, the diagnoses like a DSM diagnosis of schizophrenia or even uh, a major depressive disorder, these are things that 
don't mark severity. So as we know, someone can have major depressive disorder of very, very high severity or major depressive disorder of more mild severity. And those two individual symptoms might look extremely different, but they both have the same diagnosis. And that's kind of unusual and it is a challenge. It makes it very hard to use a diagnosis or simple labels to say, here's the most severe person who really needs our help. Um, so we've worked to, um, you all have as well, worked to, 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 to sort of describe in the simplest terms we can, um, who is it that home should serve in contrast to an E6 team uh, or another kind of outreach team that may not have mental health specialty services. This is one um, tool, one strategy for understanding the kinds of clients who really need home help. Um, and it just includes four domains, communication difficulties, active avoidance of others, challenges with hygiene, and unsafe behaviors of a variety of sorts, uh, some degree of a lack of safety, some challenges with hygiene, some avoidance, again, sort of avoidance of services, but more substantially just keeping others away. And then what you all notice very frequently, challenges communicating, challenges um, uh, providing information, giving clear and consistent information, making one's needs known. These are all uh, communication challenges that we might see frequently in home clients. Alongside this sense of sort of getting rather uh, specific about who it is that home serves, you all have undergone an evolution, right, with the merging of the two programs. Um, though SB82 and to a large extent, the original home team as well, their aim was outreach, engage, and link unsheltered individuals with mental illness to services. Uh, you know, make that link to the FSP team, bring that person to the clinic team that could serve them for their mental health needs. Um, now, the new home team aims outreach, engage, and treat the most vulnerable and disengaged unsheltered individuals. So shifting from linking to treating is very significant. And I know this is part of what you all have been going through in the new, uh, uh, a new, a new sense of home. There's a, a lot of things that come along with this, right? Um, thoughts about that transition, um, ideas about this. What has been the most challenging aspect of this kind of shift, would you say? Um, I, I forgot my original train of thought, but I'm, I'm kind of, um, most of my barriers now, I, I would have to say the low-lying fruit is gone. All the people that were out there that were circumstantial, like something happened, they lost their job, they lost a loved one, and they ended up on the streets. I, I think through all our efforts, we have been able to assist those folks and get them indoors and get them the services they need. The, the people that we're engaging with now, I find, or I would argue that it, it's not, it's no longer just sheltering them anymore. It's substance abuse treatment. And um, we're, we're trying to ask people that have a substance abuse uh, problem to wait a week or two before we could actually reach out to them and have a place for them to go and check in 
sometimes if you get lucky, it's three days, but in three days, they might want to do it anymore. And that has been, I think, my biggest barrier in spot four is engaging with folks that are heavily using meth, are practically dying out there because the, the medical complications that come with it. And yet when we take them to either Harbor UCLA or USC, it's just a rotating door. They're in and out. And it's unfortunate. Um, and, and I think this is the year that I've had the most clients that die out there because of that. Oh my gosh. Our inability to continue to utilize the care system to treat these folks. And, and it's been very unfortunate. I think also, um, I mean, the home team 7-3 has uh, kind of tried to follow this to the best of their ability from the beginning. Um, but with the pandemic, um, we saw our team just kind of being uh, shuffled to like put out fires and, you know, with the PRK situation and trying to get everybody um, off the street and into safety, we kind of, um, kind of pulled away a little bit from looking for clients that meet exactly this criteria. Um, but I, I think collaboratively as a team, we were back to like normal business and really focusing on those clients that do meet that criteria. But we did kind of experience a little bit of shift with um, the PRK and COVID and those changes that were asked of the team to, to assist with. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's an additional shift. So flurry of activity, focus on COVID, exigencies, things that had to happen immediately, and it shifts a little who you work with. I think the first point, Miguel, I believe that was you who you were speaking about the challenge of substance use. Um, a great point and highlights two big challenges here in this work. Um, the first is the scarcity of treatment resources for your clients. They're not available when the client would most want them or need them. And then secondly, as well, it's sort of working with a population who may be ambivalent about what you have to offer. They may not want help if you ask them, but part of them might want it. One day they might want it and then they don't. And that's a very different way of working than just working with someone who wants to be linked to services, right? So really much, more, I mean, that is treatment. That is for working with someone around motivation for change. It's tricky. Yeah, oh, Dr. Bum, I just remembered what I was gonna mention earlier. Um, I, I think my biggest um, disappointment is that involuntary holds are, are not involuntary. Like they have to volunteer to go get treatment. And I don't understand where we went to like for involuntary holds, they have to volunteer. Like that just doesn't make sense to me. And um, it's, it's across the board, either law enforcement or, or rescue when they show up, that's the magic word they actually get off their vehicles with that leading question. Do you want us to help you? If they say no, they, they walk away right away. 
law enforcement, the fire department, they leave. They don't even they don't even stay behind to to even check to see if the client's doing well. So I, I hope or I wish somebody would advocate and and make a fifty one fifty hold an involuntary hold involuntary. Yeah, yeah. No, you're highlighting a really critical issue that is really it seems more pronounced in the COVID context, but certainly something that's come up frequently if the police are not. Um, going to put hands on, for instance, and help someone get onto the gurney. What is the meaning of that? Oh, that is that is very confusing and an important issue. Um, we we have a hand raised as well. Call in user five. Yeah, very much on that note of you know the logistics of placing holds. I've had a number of occasions where we put someone on hold for you know. GD and danger to self, danger to others, and they really just get kind of lost in the system. Um, they typically don't uh, stay in the hospital for more than, you know, 24 hours. And then because of the communication breakdowns for various reasons, a lot of times the, the, the person at the hospital, when we don't have a DMH liaison, will say that I can't share any info via HIPAA. Um, and then that person really just kind of disappears and falls through the cracks. So in the event that we do have to place folks on a hold, which is not uncommon given that we're dealing with a lot of GD, um, they do make it to the hospital, but then we never see them again. We have no idea where they are. So just kind of that, um, the continuity of care piece has, has really been uh, iffy this year. Yeah, hospitals don't communicate. So you're also adding in then if you get them there, then you can't advocate. I mean, part of what we talk about is the importance of once someone gets to the ER, bringing forward what you know about them and their history so that the ER is aware of that. And it is not a HIPAA violation to share that information for care continuity. There is no permission needed from the client to do that from the hospital side or from your side. You're trying to coordinate care. Right. No HIPAA problem, but they don't, they resist that in the hospital sometimes, don't they? They do, and, and I've tried to relay that to them, but, you know, that it, the message really doesn't get across. And I, I'm even dealing with a case right now where I've got, I've left three voicemails, no callbacks, and I have no idea where this client is. Um, so that's right. that's really been a challenge, because that's kind of our, that is a, a, a wonderful tool that we have in our tool belt is to put them on the hold to mandate that care and kind of get the ball rolling with their treatment process. And yet, you know, more often than not, in fact, I think every time I put someone on hold, that's been the case. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to make make sure it works out on the other end. That and, you know, I don't, uh, this is just, you know, the old, oldest story in the book, but there's really nowhere to put these folks. Like if, you know, I have cases where they, they do say they want to be, you know, they want to go to a shelter, but they're also not appropriate for a shelter or, you know, they'll discharge them to a board and care and the person doesn't last, you know, more than a day because of paranoid thoughts, violent tendencies, what have you. So there, there's just nowhere to place these folks that it feels like there's nowhere to place these folks that fit the description of, of you know, what you had opened up the, uh, the meeting with. Right, right. What, uh, and, and, and Dario, I think, yeah, systemic problem. These are, this is a system problem. It's a scarce resource problem for the work that you do. 
and it's both part of what makes the work really fascinating and also what makes it incredibly challenging and frustrating. You get to see the whole system. It's sort of remarkable in working with such complex clients like this. You all have the closest view of the how all the pieces fit together and when they don't. Um, and it's, uh, it is it is challenging now for sure. Um, I'm gonna move on a little bit though. I definitely wanna come back to this issue of Holt's involuntary um, interventions um, because the issue I'm highlighting here is a lot of the individuals you work with have a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia. And uh, this is a description of some of the key symptoms, uh, manifestations of psychotic disorders, a psychiatric syndrome characterized by psychotic symptoms, hallucinations, delusions, disorganized speech, negative symptoms such as decreased motivation, diminished expressiveness, and cognitive deficits involving impaired executive functions, memory and speed of mental processing, slowing. Schizophrenia is among the top 10 global causes of disability, very disabling disorder, but it is the case there's a wide variation in the ability of persons with schizophrenia to function in their daily lives. Some are severely disabled, others are able to function at a high level. Uh, very important as a part of the, the issue I named at the very beginning, the diagnosis itself does not tell us about severity. But you all work with some individuals with very severely disabling psychotic disorders. And uh, this slide uh, uh, highlights some of the key challenges that presents. Here's another way of talking about the kinds of symptoms that are very common among individuals who've been diagnosed with a psychotic disorder. Perseveration is, is this uh, uh, pattern in speech where someone might say the same thing over and over and over again. Um, poverty of speech, just not having much to say at all. One word answers, um, maybe two words at most, won't generate spontaneous speech content for you. Uh, not someone who's kind of having a back and forth with you. Um, delusions, fixed false beliefs that you can't talk someone out of. They truly believe it is their reality that certain things are happening around them um, that, are, that, are, that are not really there uh, as, as you understand it. Um, these kinds of psychotic thoughts cause a lot of distraction. Internal preoccupation is a way we talk about that. Too many thoughts, lots of thoughts that are disordered. Um, and that, that makes it difficult for someone to engage with others. A motivation, sort of very low levels of what we call intrinsic motivation, which we all have when we get up in the morning, we say, okay, here we go, I'm gonna do it. Having some drive. Sometimes individuals with psychotic disorders have very little of that. Um, anisognosia is this terrible word for this experience of not recognizing that they have an illness. 
to someone who really says, you know, I, I, I don't have a mental illness when it's very clear to you that they do meet criteria for a mental illness. Um, disorganized thinking, which translates into speech that's really hard to understand, that jumps from one topic to another, that really is nothing like what you ask them about, um, very common. And that is a, also reflection of disorganization and behavior. So things sometimes like just not really losing clothes or using things or able to keep track of things around someone. So sort of disorganization uh, in behavior. And then a phenomenon we sometimes call psychotic ambivalence, not just normal run-of-the-mill ambivalence having two thoughts or feelings about something, but truly not being able to even manage the next uh, uh, minute. Um, should I stand up or sit down? Should I walk across the room? Should I stay here? Should I go to lunch or not go to lunch? These sort of regular minute to minute decisions that become disabling sometimes for someone with psychosis, paralyzing, absolutely paralyzing. Stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. Uh, very hard to even make uh, small behaviors happen. You'll see that as well. So there are certain things that you all see that we sort of feel probably must be a psychotic kind of behavior. And what I mean by that is something that might be motivated by like a delusional idea or by a hallucination. Someone's telling you, you've got to do this. Someone's giving you an order. Um, they might be a result of just being distracted by many non-real thoughts, um, or it might be this manifestation of just, just behavioral disorganization, which probably is due to some of the cognitive deficits of schizophrenia. Oh, backward. Um, staying immobile in one place for long periods of time, you know, really suggests there might be a delusional reason that person stays put. Of course, you have to rule out any physical problem, a health problem that might be causing this. But very unusual thing to do. Um, keeping urine and feces near your head while you sleep, just not a thing that without mm, some impairment due to psychotic disorder, not a natural thing to gesturing, staring, talking to oneself, never looking at you, not making eye contact. That's a thing to notice as well. Not using clothes in a way that would make sense, running away from you for no clear reason. Sure, some people might be wary or not very interested in talking to you, but they're unlikely to be afraid of you, right? And flee. So that's uh, uh, concerning. Um, minimal words, mentioned poverty of speech, that sort of thing. That's the kind of thing you will see. None of these are equal to psychosis, but they certainly are things you see commonly among people who have psychotic disorders. So uh, some of you may have seen the VAT. The VAT is actually the original measure that the five by five is based on. So if you're familiar with a five by five, it includes a category of medical risks, mental health, substance use, homelessness, a, a measure of mortality, risks. Those have been integrated into the five by five but these ones in red are in the original VAT measure, 
vulnerability assessment tool. It was developed in order to match people to housing types. So people who needed extra supported housing uh, would have a higher score on the VAT. So these red domains here, organization and orientation, meeting basic needs, survival skills, communication, social behaviors, challenges in these areas are indicative or are the kinds of things that you might see in home clients. Here's another way of thinking about this. Some of you may remember this analysis of 30 cases that Anthony Ruffin did some time back with Elizabeth Javier. They had, they had worked with 30 uh, uh, very challenged individuals and there were two patterns. So about half of them were in this category of isolated or immobile or avoidant, kind of hidden perhaps. Um, maybe hiding in plain sight is sometimes how these individuals uh, uh, come to our attention. They're not using substances and uh, they may be just telling you everything's fine, but you're looking at them and they've been living on a bus bench for a couple of decades. Uh, they have rotted food around them. Clearly not everything is fine, but totally refusing services, often very quiet. They might be receiving food from the community. And then there's this other category of individuals you also work with and uh, who, who present their own sorts of challenges, who are often uh, very easy to engage or talk to, uh, hard to avoid in a way. In the community, everyone in the community knows about them. Sometimes they'll accept services. Uh, was mentioned a person who you get them into a placement, but they're so sick they can't stay for more than a day. That's sort of this category of person. You can sometimes find an arrangement for them, but it's a challenge for them uh, to stick with it. Uh, oh, substances can be a big issue here for this, this category. And uh, they may have had lots and lots of service contacts, um, but they don't, no, they don't stick. They, they, they fail that person, those service contacts, for all the reasons you've all named. Um, the expectations are too high. It's too rigid. They're not accepting of substance use and so forth. That's this category here of high utilizers. So some of the challenges in working with these individuals is it's often difficult to come to a kind of agreement about what to do, um, a, a sort of overt, verbalized, shared understanding of what the individual wants. And so some of you may have seen our trainings on grave disability. This is a slide from that training, which um, is intended to illustrate uh, Hector is a, a client we made up. Hector believes that he has a solar powered heart, that his heart has been removed and that he carries around with him in his backpack a, a heart that is powered by the sun. And this is a delusional belief. And once the, the, the outreach specialist finds out about this, he wants to go to Hector and talk about this idea because he's thinking, well, this might prevent him from being able to live indoors if he thinks his heart is in his backpack. And one of the challenges is that if you go to talk to Hector about his delusional belief, um, 
the first thing that will not happen, we really won't be able to talk Hector out of his belief that he has a solar-powered heart. As absurd as it seems, as illogical as it is, you could spend years and years and years and you would never convince Hector that he doesn't have a solar-powered heart. Illusions just don't work that way. The other thing Hector won't tell you is exactly the way that this belief about his heart makes it hard for you to help him. He's not going to tell you, you're correct. I have to live outside. My heart needs the sun to work. Um, the, the, this is why I can't accept the hotel that you're offering. Um, he's not likely to explain it very clearly to you. Um, so that's challenging. And uh, Stephanie developed this wonderful little storyboard for me about the kinds of things you might do if you're trying to talk with Hector about his delusion. Um, wonder if you could tell me what you think is going on with your heart. I'm trying to be very gentle with Hector. Hector's like, I'm doing great, doing great. I heard that your heart was removed. That must be very distressing. How awful that might be for you. I'd be very angry if that happened to me. Doesn't say anything to that either. Um, Hector, I'm worried about your health. Your legs are swollen. Um, I wonder, maybe we should try talking to the doctors again. I don't need the doctors, goodbye. Um, and, and then, you know, uh, really directly trying to say, oh, I hear you have this belief that you carry a heart in your backpack. I know it's important to you. Do you want to tell me more about that? Um, Hector gets angry and he walks away. You know, this is an illustration both of challenging communication uh, situations with our clients. We, we, we struggle to, to sort of make headway in terms of uh, uh, engaging with them around the issues that are important. It also is an illustration of this, um, the, the, what I think is a big shift you all must be dealing with, which is sometimes working with clients like this, they don't want our help. They're telling us to go away. They're telling us they're fine. And we can see that they're not fine, or we can see we actually have help that would be very valuable to them. Um, we also think there's a part of them, again, a part of them that might want it, um, even though they're not telling us precisely about that. Many of you have mentioned the importance of involuntary holds, but for all of us using involuntary uh, methods or insisting that someone wants something when they're telling us they don't, that is never easy. And I'm very curious about how you all talk amongst yourselves with others you work with about things like using a hold or hospitalizing someone against their will or seeing them even though they tell you to go away. Um, what has that been like? How do you think about that? Um, how uncomfortable has that been and when? Anyone want to say something about those issues? Well, uh, hello, my name is Maria. I think that that is uh, just very hard when our clients 
are not very open to any of us. They're very, to have that defensive mode and they have that big wall. For us to carry this conversation would have taken us a very long time before we even got to this point. Um, you know, so, um, I mean, I think that just to carry the backpack, it brings a lot of questions in mind and, um, and it might be important to him as well as his importance to us, but just overall, I think that is it's very difficult to um, to build this rapport with their clients, especially again to this point. Very difficult to build rapport. Thank you for that. It really is. It can be very difficult to build rapport. I do. Um, the, the only thing I want to add to that that sometimes I, at first I I didn't think engaging with them on a regular basis was much of a of a, of building rapport but i i have noticed now that when they are in need for whatever reason if they were attacked or if they they really feel sick and they feel like something's really wrong they they do reach out like they'll ask you you'll be the first person they'll ask for help so even though i have clients that every day they tell me to fuck off every single day but they'll take the food so um, I, I think even those encounters are important. Miguel, thank you for that. I was thinking the same thing that um, if you all remember a few slides back, I said one of the things that happens for individuals who have a psychotic disorder is a, a, a kind of absence of expression, of affective expression and also they don't come back with you about like, oh, did you see the Lakers game? Or, you know, they're not asking you questions, but that doesn't mean they're not attached to you and deeply attached. And it's in fact, my assumption, and it has certainly been my experience that Hector and his, his outreach specialist, they have a very strong tie. Hector really values this person. He just doesn't express it. Um, he doesn't show it in the same way that others might. And, uh, and you may not know, you might question whether you matter to Hector, um, but it's been my experience, you matter a lot and you probably matter a lot more than you know, or uh, most certainly more than the client is showing you. Can, am I still unmuted? Go ahead. Go yeah. ahead, I can hear you. Um, yeah, you know, because uh, I, I believe it was someone had mentioned um, how, you know, we certainly sometimes when there isn't that like interpersonal engagement, sometimes we are able to provide that support um, by helping out with their basic needs, such as, you know, food. Um, but also, and we've encountered there's a lot of cases where the community provides them with food. And sometimes like, you know, what we can give doesn't beat out like, you know, a, a home cooked meal from maybe the neighbor down the street. Um, but what is something that sometimes they do ask from us uh, are cigarettes and cigarettes is like really, really big currency out there that they may not have access to. And so I guess something that's come up um, is the question of, I don't, I, I imagine it's not consistent with county policy, but more in the spirit of like harm reduction, um, if that could ever be something that, you know, we could offer because um, I think that there have may have been some really big gains, uh, may or may not have been, I'm not quite sure, um, this year when, you know, we were able to provide that as far as us being kind of someone who 
you know, we're able to go the distance uh, for these folks and really kind of meet them where they're at. Um, so I just kind of wanted to throw that out there as we look at sort of revamping the program and strengthening it and being, you know, client-centered, um, sort of what, what sort of new developments could really assist these folks. And I've noticed that that might be something uh, critical. Great question. Can you buy cigarettes for your clients? I don't know about policy. Do others have uh, either an understanding of whether that's restricted to do, or also how do you feel about it? Actually, this is an issue that comes up quite frequently in a lot of different contexts. Should I buy cigarettes for my clients? Should I let them smoke in front of me? Some people are like, I'm not going to let them smoke in front of me. That's not good for their health and so forth. Others feel, as you're saying, this is a thing we can do that they are wanting. Um, how do others feel about this? Um, yeah, we brought this up actually um, over the years, time and time again, the whole um, Eddie Cash to be able to buy the client a cigarette or two, kind of build that rapport. So what um, we've actually um, done is our staff members who are smokers will, you know, take one of their um, I think talks about Eddie Cash is kind of still in the works on and off. The, you know, could you, sorry help. to interrupt, you're coming out, coming in and out just a little bit. It sounded like you were saying staff members who smoke on your team will bring cigarettes to the clients. Can you say again how you handle that? Yeah, they'll take one out of their pack and share one, you know, not share one, but give one to the client and then have a an engagement that way, build the rapport <clears throat> because we're unable to purchase cigarettes on our Cal cards. I think that that's very hard to do. I wouldn't do it uh, because I would like to may maybe go to a different approach, maybe suggest something else as to why they would like to smoke cigarettes, maybe do something different. I mean, making a change in a, uh, in, in a different ways, using different tactics, different suggestions or different something because um, I mean, someone that is already comfortable in smoking or drinking to me is just, uh, I won't, I feel like I'm not gonna enable their addiction. I won't, um, and I will not use any funding, even if I'm not even at work. If I, someone asks me for money out in the street, I'll tell them I'll buy them food. And if they don't wanna take the food, then that's, that's up to them. But I would not buy something to build that rapport because I'm accepting what they are, are with their ad addiction and, um, I had to deal that with my own brother and I had to make sure that I try to use something different. Um, if they're smoking as her staff are, like I said, uh, what other things can they do to minimize that? What other things have they done to uh, have their, um, it, instead of smoking, um, not smoke in front of their, their uh, those individuals that are trying to stop from smoking? I don't know. I have a different mind, um, a mind of thinking, but again, this is just me. Many people use different ways of building rapport, but I would not enable their addictions because that's not helping them at all. And I definitely don't want them to smoke in front of me because my lungs are precious as well. I agree. I so appreciate both points of view and that was you explained the whole thing so thoroughly where you're coming from 
personal experience, you, you don't want to be exposed to smoke. You don't want to enable it for the person you want to, you don't want to signal that it's fine with you if they smoke. I also so appreciate the other point of view. This is a thing we can do to connect. It's a thing they want. They're going to do it anyway. Here we are. We can really be, be kind of immediately on the same level, same plane, which is super challenging. So I appreciate both points of view. I don't think they're the right or wrong here. Other thoughts about that and also engagement generally or other uh, tricks you've come up with here? GD, we can talk a little about GD. Um, you know, if you haven't yet been able to watch our trainings on GD, they're, they're posted on our website and there's a series of four trainings um, about understanding grave disability. And I'll just quickly go through some of the takeaways. Um, all of these here on this slide, these are ways that we hear people talking about grave disability. Um, you know, he's not eating, must be gravely disabled. This person is engageable, so she can't be gravely disabled. Um, this person has a plan to get somewhere, must mean he's not gravely disabled. Sometimes in the ER, you will hear, you will hear uh, psychiatrists and others in the ER do this sort of thing. They're not gravely disabled because he knows how to survive or because we don't have a bed for him. <laughs> this is not correct. This is not, not actual good definitions of grave disability, but to acknowledge you do hear these and it can be very frustrating. Um, I think sometimes often the person who's saying it to you knows this isn't really what grave disability is, but they are limited in what they can do. And so this is how they say it. So I think it's just important for, for us all to know what the definition of grave disability is, even though we recognize there are system constraints or things that happen that make it hard for us to act on it in a way that we would like. So this is the definition of grave disability from the LPS Act, condition which a person as a result of a mental disorder is unable to provide for his or her basic personal needs for food, clothing, or shelter. And in our trainings, we break this down into two parts. This means when you're evaluating grave disability, you both want to understand the ability of the person to provide for their basic needs for food, clothing, and shelter. And then you wanna understand their motivation. Why is it that they are unable to provide for food, clothing, and shelter? And in the statute itself, a motivation is as a result of a mental illness, because they are mentally ill, they are unable to provide for food, clothing, or shelter. Um, this is the, the precise language that maps onto that evaluation strategy. And so we've all seen really clear cut examples of this. So let's say we decided with Hector, Hector has a delusion that he has a solar powered heart. That means that he is not willing to go indoors, even when he needs to be in a hospital for physical health reasons. He has a delusional belief that is driving him away from the hospital. We could make a strong argument in that case for grave disability. As a result of his delusion, he's not able to, to meet his basic needs. These are other examples. 
believing that signing your name to a housing application would lead to arrest, would refuse, food and clothing brought by outreach needs to be approved by others, imaginary others, overseers. Um, that is an argument for GD. Um, I have to stay on the street corner. I am tasked with surveillance here. I work for the CIA. I cannot leave. Um, uh, I can't go back to a boarding care or any other congregate setting because the people that work there are in a cult and they select which residents are going to torture. And I'm, I'm not willing to go there. That is a delusional belief that could prevent someone from accessing services. Here's a couple of other examples. Um, Hector's in the middle there. Two people in uniforms who happen to be security guards or police officers walking around in the neighborhood. They're actually prison guards. I'm in jail here and they'll execute me if I leave this bench. Um, I can't go to a shelter because they're run by the KGB. You get a chip implant in your head if you go there. Again, a delusional belief. Um, we can all understand where these ideas come from. They often do have a connection to something real. Um, they're mm, bizarre, but not outlandish, right? When you live in some shelter settings, there are a lot of people watching you. There are lots of rules. There's a lot of control. You can see where the idea comes from, but you can also see if this becomes a fixed false belief, you, you really won't be able to get the person off the streets unless you can uh, have them access treatment. Medications can help with a lot of these unless that belief can be lessened in intensity. It's hard for them to access services. Um, let me go back a sec and just pause. Questions, observations about those issues. Question I see in the chat here, how do we help a client that's been started on a long acting injectable, but later expresses wanting to discontinue the treatment? Um, what do you say? What do you, how, how, do you, how do you talk with a client like that? What are some issues you might wanna be sure to review with the person? What would you kind of spend time on in your evaluation of this particular problem. We could even expand it out a little bit. Someone who is taking medication but isn't really wanting it, um, or maybe isn't so sure they want medications at all. What are the things you try to talk about with that person? Risks and benefits, great side effects. First thing that comes to mind for me, how is it feeling taking this medication? Are you having any side effects? Are you super tired? Do you feel jittery? Do you feel you can't sleep? Um, do you ha have any other headaches that upset your stomach? Do you have any side effects to the medications? Um, if so, let's figure out why that's happening. Why is that happening? Is it the medication? Is there something we can do about it? Side effects are a great thing to ask about. And then benefits, as you're saying, Amberly. Boy, you've been taking this shot. Now it's been two months. Have you noticed anything that's different? Is there anything that you think is a little bit easier with the shot? 
Um, maybe you're sleeping a little better. Do you think you might feel a little less anxious during the day? Um, how are the voices? Are they a, a, any quieter at all? Um, maybe the medication isn't working yet for you. We often encounter someone's taking a medication, but they may not be taking enough or it might be the wrong medication. They haven't gotten any benefit. They're just getting all the side effects. They're just feeling tired. They have a headache. And, and actually, in fact, what they need and want and would be, would be on board for is like, all right, let's, let's try a higher dose. Before we give up on this medication and decide it just doesn't work for you, let's try a little more. And if you don't notice a change in the voices, the voices are you know, less awful for you, we'll stop it. We'll, we don't need it, but let's see if it could help you. So side effects, are there any benefits from the medication? Um, would you like a different form? the medication maybe someone who's taking a shot they they actually they they're perfectly willing to take pills maybe you can even organize it for them so they can have pills instead of a shot reason was due to her delusion that there's hiv in the injection wow wonderful now that sort of changes everything doesn't it um what do we say there person says I'm thinking this has happened to me a few times too. Someone says, you know, I used to be getting a green pill. Now it's white. And I know that means the CIA has switched the formulation and they're now giving me the one that's poison. It used to be white and now it's green. And I know what that means. Of course, all it means is that the pharmacy changed their supplier, but the person has a really rigid, fixed belief, this is poison for me. What do you do? Dr. Bromley, it's interesting you guys bring this up because I've had clients that we've had this type of discussion and like they're willing to take cocaine, meth, whatever they can find in this <laughs> from random people. But then when you talk about medication or shots or the COVID vaccine, they're like, oh no, that's all poison, which is, you know, and then you try to rationale with them, like, really? So, you know, where, you know, your source for your cocaine, you know, your source for your meth. And they're like, no. So how do you know that's not poison? And, yeah. they, and they, they come back with interesting, like, responses. Like one person told me that meth actually keeps his immune system strong. And they refuse to take medication and the only take they take the time they take their medication if they want to hallucinate. So they'll take their medication with their meth. So like they mix the stuff up to get like a better high. Like they don't really take mm. it better. Mm. Great examples. So uh, what do you do with this? Any idea of? I just, I don't, I don't, mostly I don't really go against their, whatever is it that they're saying. Sometimes time will pass and their opinion will change. And it's just not judging them and not pushing the, the issue. Um, and, it, and then it just let it be. Like, that's what they believe right now and it, and it might change tomorrow. Excellent. 
Yeah. Oh, I like that a lot. Not not giving it too much weight. Like, okay, we can roll with this. Not, I don't need to get in a fight about it. No big deal. We're, we're going to roll with this. That makes sense. That's a great strategy sometimes. Um, I think you also mentioned one of the things I try to do. Okay, so <laughs> part of what you mentioned is it can feel pretty absurd. I mean, the example I gave of like the pills white to green, I was sort of like, I mean, the pharmacy, yeah, they've got different suppliers. It doesn't mean anything. It's a generic pill anyway. It seems absurd to me. And uh, of course, it's very important for me to check that. Not, I don't know, that uh, the patient sees none of that. You know what I mean? I'm going to be um, uh, respectful of their belief and point of view. I mean, uh, uh, ha has that kind of thing happened to you before? You can ask that with real genuine curiosity. Have you had that experience before that someone has switched out a medication or given you the wrong one? or made a mistake, it really might be that this person has had that experience, right? In the hospital, they give, they give you the wrong pill or they give you something that causes a terrible side effect, not HIV, but you get a shot and then you're stiff, you know, you can't move. And then the doctors are like, oh God, all right, we have to give you another pill to take care of that side effect. People have had very bad experiences with meds. And so sometimes you can start there. Tell, tell me, has that kind of thing happened to you before? Or have the, have the shots not worked out for you before? You can explore their history with it. One way to go. Other ideas? I think the other thing you, you really do want to do is there's often not much of a, a there's no, not much of a reason to yeah get into a fight about it. Certainly, there's, you don't need to debate about it in a way. You can say, "Gosh, that really that would be uh, really very distressing." If the, you know, that must be very upsetting to think that the shot might be um, causing you to ha have HIV or to be infected. That would be very distressing. You can you can validate their point of view. Or, Boy, I'd feel really anxious if I were experiencing that. That can be really helpful. Just to validate their point of view, find something in it you can agree with. That's a helpful way to go. You may not believe there's HIV in the shot, but you can you can get on board with that idea that it's a little unnerving to get a medication and not know exactly what's in it, especially in a shot. I requested a liquid form, no pills, no injection. How safe is it to provide liquid on the street, especially for a client that's not reliable or compliant? Um, good question about forms of meds. Of course, you want to engage with a psychiatrist whoever's prescribing the medication, see what they think about this. But um, there's always a risk with any medications we give. Maybe you're thinking of the overdose risk. Could they take too much liquid? Is it harder to do the liquid than it might be to do the pills? Certainly want to be sure you have someone who knows how to dose themselves appropriately with a medication. But it's actually really wonderful if someone's saying to you, I don't like this pill, but if I can get a liquid, I'm going to feel better. We're back to the cigarette issue. Great, I'm going to try to do that for you. That would be a thing we could try. Um, 
same reason you ask about side effects. You don't want anyone to feel bad on their meds. You don't want them to have anxiety about their meds or to feel they don't like the form of medication they're giving, that, that they're getting from you. You don't want them to have terrible side effects. So if you can find something to get on board with about what they want for their meds, um, I, I think, I, you know, it's a hassle for you. It's a little more work, right? You got to figure it out. But it's a, it is, I think it's a good thing to get behind. Great questions. Uh, we're going to have a training with we're just, uh, Dr. McGee, some of you met her in the um, GD trainings. She's a psychiatrist at, uh, she's worked at a lot of the ERs in the county. Uh, she's going to give a talk about medications uh, for non-prescribers. So the, exactly these kinds of issues about medications. Um, that's going to be coming up in the spring. So these questions will be addressed. It's a great, great set of questions. Um, I keep forging ahead. Um, thank you so much for really good questions. Okay, you decide someone's gravely disabled. It doesn't mean you have to put them in the hospital. It doesn't mean you have to put them on a hold. You have a number of things you can try. And as long as you're feeling like you're moving the client toward recovery, you're good. You're keeping them safe. You're moving them somewhere. I think this is a thing we uh, you know, probably wanna to try to keep in mind on the home team, progress might be super slow, but if you're moving in the right direction, ooh, pat yourself on the back, you're doing a really good job. Um, uh, some of the things in your toolbox, we've mentioned them already, 5150s, um, getting some support from law enforcement, conservatorship can be an option, and the outpatient pilot program can be an option. Um, the home team is big, the county is big. I know many of you, you use HOLD a lot. You're familiar with it, you're comfortable with it. You may be working though with people who are less comfortable with it, using HOLDs, the trauma of HOLDs, um, the trauma of having the police involved. What kinds of concerns are you hearing from others on your team about involuntary interventions and how do you, how do you talk about it with your colleagues? We don't want to lock someone up. What we, you know, he says he's okay. How come we're putting this person on a hold? Um, that person over there needs a hold, not this person. He hasn't done anything wrong. How do you, yeah, how do you talk about these issues, holds and hospitalizations when ethical concerns come up? Hi, uh, can everyone hear, can you hear me, Dr. Bromley? Yeah. Hello? Yeah. This is Daryl, this Go ahead. is Daryl. I can hear you. Okay, this is Daryl in spot six. I think for one, we need to expand the definition of GD to include uh, not acute, but more subacute health issues. We have a lot of the people that we see, the targeted population who have serious medical issues that don't, you know, if we put them on a whole um, and probably uh, the hospital staff needs to be involved in this conversation and working with us to keep those people uh, on the psych side and or on the medical side to uh, uh, gain that medical treatment that they need and then possibly get them stabilized on the psych side. So we need to expand that. And I think uh, because right now we really stretched the 
uh, the writing of a whole to try to make the whole just stick. I think like Colin said earlier, a lot of people that we've placed on hold are there 24 hours, they're out and then we lose them. And so we need to have not only probably this, you know, that whole, that whole medical side is in a silo. And I know they're kind of overtaxed, but so are we. So we need to work a little closer together. Uh, we need to expand the definition of the, uh, the GD criteria, LPS law, whatever we need to do. I know that's, that's a task by itself and maybe a long-term goal that we can look at and uh, work a little bit closer with the health piece on getting people hospitalized because, you know, the, the presenting issue is a medical issue and then the underlying is a psych issue for a lot of the people that we see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's the medical issue really, you really need help with. It, it, it causes sometimes the urgency and it feels like it's a little bit outside of what LPS is supposed to be about, right? Yeah, huge challenge. Yeah. I think the hospital partners are really important here. Yeah, they're not always they're not always partners though. No. That's the problem. You know, on the bright side, one thing that that I could share is that people that we have hospitalized and that were discharged fairly quickly and we weren't notified, because the buses are free they come back to the community that they're comfortable with. So we're able to find them a lot easier now because they have that resource. So the free is beneficial for our team. Yeah, that hasn't happened so much in six. Uh, we've mm-hmm. lost we've lost more than a handful who were as a result of hospitalization, this uh, discharged and then displaced. And we've even yeah. gone over to the hospital campuses looking for them without success. So, I mean, it, it, it's, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's good to even disrupt, you know, their uh, decompensation, but overall it, it, uh, it, uh, it, it kind of hurts in that, I don't know if they get engaged again because we can't find them. We don't know what happened. Yeah. And the sad part about this, and this is reality, is that many people have died out in the street because we were not notified on time. And sometimes these clients do need severely a lot of help. And they not sometimes, it's very, it's very not often that they go back to the same place that they were in the past. And sometimes, you know, um, you do get to find out that they are somewhere that um, they really end up being found dead and this is the truth and I tell you from personal experience so I think that these places that um, often leave these clients to come out within less than 72 hours or less than two weeks without notifying us knowing that we've kept in touch with them it's very unfair not only to the client but to the people in the work team that is working with them because we're not part of that uh, helping them to get uh, safety in place, what is that really helping the people out there? It really makes me upset when this comes because this happened just like the gentleman before, it happens very much more often than we think. 
Thank you for that. It is a real area of frustration. And the hospital partners are sometimes the ones who never come to the table. I mean, if you have a community meeting, and I don't know, you all might you, you have a meeting in your area where you have all the outreach partners, you have the police there, you have the other outreach teams, you have community-based organizations who come to the table, DHS, UPH, LASA, everyone's there. The hospitals aren't there. You know, whatever that private hospital is that you always have to use their ER, those people aren't at the table and it's very frustrating. There isn't accountability for them. One thing that's super important, of course, is making sure your supervisor and program leadership, Latina, is aware when there are things like this that happen that involve a hospital discharging when they shouldn't have, you know, making it very clear where the ball was dropped. It doesn't fix the problem, but it at least highlights the areas where accountability is really critical. Um, similarly with police, when you police come out and they say, oh, this person doesn't meet our criteria, we're not gonna help you. Um, alerting MEU or making sure your supervisor is aware that that happened, calling the precinct captain, uh, talking with the senior lead officer in that area, building a relationship with those people so that when things like this happen, at least you can say, look, we had, ugh, it was really unfortunate the way it went down. We just wanted to make sure you were aware. Next time, next time can we work directly with you so it goes more smoothly? Those relationships are really critical. You know, I know it's super frustrating, but one of the things this roadmap slide illustrates is that you use a hold, sometimes it doesn't stick, but that then advances us to the next strategy. You know, it's very clear there have been X number of holds in a certain period of time that have not been successful. That makes the case for you for the next step. So here's where you work a lot of the time around assessment, understanding whether this person is okay on the street, whether they're greatly disabled, whether they need some sort of involuntary intervention um, and using the ER. And if they're there in the ER, but they uh, uh, fall out again, they're back on the street, you may kind of come back to this assessment point where they go back to the ER and eventually can uh, uh, enter on to uh, a pathway that involves conservatorship. This roadmap illustrates the traditional pathway, the ER to the inpatient unit, um, person is deemed on the inpatient unit disabled enough that they meet GDU criteria, they stay there until the conservatorship is in place, and then they typically move to an IMD or a subacute setting. Um, other options from the ER or from the inpatient unit are things like a PUF, a shorter term hospital stay, a crisis residential bed, medical respite, ERC, uh, a boarding care, or ERS, a subacute facility, detox. These are just a variety of services that could be available. I recognize they're very hard to access, but this is the pathway, the one that uh, efforts are being made to strengthen this. Um, and more and more, hopefully, you can have access to street psychiatry. So psychiatrists you get to work with that can help with your, your client who needs medications on the street. 
and uh, trying to make available the least restrictive context for someone as they improve should always be our goal. Couple of words about the outpatient conservatorship pilot. So the aim of the outpatient conservatorship pilot is to arrange placement and treatment in the least restrictive environment possible to minimize the time the individual spends in the acute care hospital and to mobilize and coordinate various placement resources to get a subacute bed, an ERS bed, a boarding care bed, a crisis residential placement, a PUF placement, to, to get all those players on board with finding a placement for these individuals. Um, uh, and uh, that can mean sometimes someone is conserved on the street. They, they don't go into a hospital. They get conserved and then they get placed on that conservatorship and not in an IMD, uh, maybe placed even in a boarding care straight from the street. Um, for others in the outpatient conservatorship pilot, they may be placed on a temporary conservatorship while they're on the street and then they'll be placed in a facility uh, that can care for them and provide treatment um, while on that temporary conservatorship. And that temporary conservatorship or TCON, that is a preliminary step toward a full conservatorship. It's, a, it's temporary. It's uh, uh, meant to be just in between uh, while you're waiting for that final conservatorship hearing. You don't have to place a TCON to get to conservatorship. So in the outpatient conservatorship pilot, they're trying both strategies, using the TCON, which gives some powers to the Office of Public Guardian, or just going straight to that permanent conservatorship, LPS conservatorship for the individual. Those that are enrolled in the outpatient conservatorship pilot, the clients are all very, very different and the pathways for them are all very, very different. But the main idea is to take someone who's gravely disabled and move them via a conservatorship toward stable housing, a stable placement with the, with the least amount of time necessary in an acute care hospital. Does that make sense? Questions about that? Experiences with this? Challenges you've had around the pilot? Maybe I'll just say a little about this slide here because it, it dovetails with this question we're bringing up of just feeling a little like, ugh, we don't have the resources we need. So even if a team is working with someone who's clearly gravely disabled, even in order to get enrolled into the pilot, the aim is to offer that individual a platter of services. Some people say, offer that person everything, uh, FSP, um, uh, all kinds of services, medications, um, see if they're eligible for AOT. They may meet criteria for AOT, in which case a referral to AOT, and it may be close enough to criteria for AOT, you wanna refer them to AOT. We're gonna try all of those things. See if a psychiatrist can work with them for at least 60 days uh, and see if they can make some progress through that. And if not, then the outpatient conservatorship pilot may be an option for them. So this is the sort of thing that happens for everyone who's considered for the pilot. Questions about that? Challenges, experiences you've had with this pilot? Hi, this is uh, Daryl at Spastics again. We had a, a uh, candidate, uh, even Dr. Sharon came out and saw 
Dr. Rab worked with um, a long-term chronic homeless individual who uh, quite surprisingly accepted, <laughs> accepted taking the medication from Dr. Rab. She's on injectables now and has since cleared up. So she's no longer eligible for the pilot uh, and is about to be housed, which is kind of a, a success story in progress. Yeah. But uh, the pilot, yeah, the pilot program is really good. Like, Great to hear. That's actually what, that's been a huge area of learning that often if you can um, engage the psychiatrist with some of these individuals and really intensively work with them, a conservatorship isn't necessary. They're, they're gonna be able to take up some of what's offered and then you'll have more things that they're interested in. That's happened quite a bit and it's great news. Thanks for that. Any other questions, observations about the pilot, challenges you've had? Definitely been a learning experience. I think I think this is my last slide indeed. Yeah, this is where I was gonna end. So questions about this pilot or about anything else we've discussed, what suggestions do you have about things you wanna spend more time on in terms of training, things you wanna hear about? What other thoughts do you have? What's been useful here? Okay, great. Well, if you don't have any further questions, uh, any other issues you want to address with one another today? We can stop there in the Dr. chat. Bromley, mm -hmm. Is the county working with federal agencies at a bigger picture, like instead of macro, more ma macro, like where we partner up with FEMA and start putting together, like, I know this is a bad word, but FEMA camps where we make it illegal for people to be on drugs in the streets and we take them to these camps and we get them sober and cleaned up and utilize all these programs, like anything big picture like that in the works? Well, the big picture things that are in the works have to do with more housing, more placements. So expanding the number of ERS facilities available, supporting and expanding the boarding care housing options available, identifying better strategies for managing the hospital bed capacity. Um, the county actually probably has enough hospital beds, acute care hospital beds, they're just not utilized effectively. People have a psychiatric admission, it's far too short. They don't get hooked into the services they need afterward. Um, other places people get stuck in the hospital, for instance, waiting on a conservatorship. Um, so the big picture issues are primarily around those resource, housing resource issues. There are on the immediate horizon more mental health shelter beds. One of the things they have in lots of other communities in the country are shelter beds tra uh, or transitional housing sites that are designed for people with severe mental illness, have a little more space, are not so intense, are more welcoming, they're smaller. County doesn't really have anything like that, a mental health shelter. Well, also an issue you mentioned that they're housing first oriented, harm reduction oriented. It's not the sort of place you get kicked out if you, you know, you're smoking a joint in your room and they kick you out. No, we need places that are gonna be 
tolerant and supportive for the kinds of clients that we're working with. So those mental health shelters, those kinds of things are in the works. People are working very hard to manage that transient, uh, transitional housing stock so that there are options that work for our clients. Um, you know, I don't, in terms of working with FEMA or federal uh, agencies, for the most part, I think um, what we understand to work best, to be most evidence-based is a housing first approach, which means a very low bar to entry, low requirements for people that they don't have to promise to be sober. They don't have to promise to accept treatment, um, but we can first focus on bringing people inside. And then from there, they, we see what they need. So that sort of low bar to entry kind of approach is what seems to work best, even for our clients. And so I think most of the big picture resource strategies that people are thinking about have to do with uh, making housing sites more accessible for people with mental illness. I think more- We're gonna get there. Those, those should be built like- in Go ahead, Miguel. And Brentwood and- all those affluent places, because if they put, keep putting them in the hood, nobody cares. It's like just out of sight, out of mind. And if they're in the places like Silver Lake, where people could have, you know, leverage and influence, then stuff like that works. Absolutely. It becomes really something the community is doing. Yeah. The Board of Supervisors is really committed to this so a lot. A, a lot was happening certainly before the pandemic and we're going to keep working at it. Well, thanks for everything, Doc. No, thank you all. The work you do is really important. You're doing super innovative, important work for the county. This is just a space for a lot of growth and advancement and the things you learn and do on your job are critical to it. Um, so I'm so glad we could come together and that you have each other to keep going with this um, difficult time right now, but better days ahead and we're gonna make progress here.